Hey guys, it's Marco, co-host of Sitting with Sal. I couldn't help but notice that some of you didn't write a review for this podcast yet, so I'm going to wait right here before the show starts, and I'll give you guys some time to go do that right now, so go ahead. You done yet? Did you do it? You sure? Awesome. Alright guys, enjoy the rest of the show. Sitting with Sal. Today is June 22nd. It's almost 6 p.m. and this is episode number 10 of the podcast. I'm your host, Salvatore Chicchino. Um, today I'm flying solo. We don't have any co host in the building, so please bear with me as the only other time I've done a solo episode has been the introduction, and we, we all know that was a little shoddy at best. So, um, so let's get into housekeeping. There is one thing I know I wanted to talk about. I brought it up, I believe, the last episode, maybe the episode before, but I actually did acquire my Diamondback uh, DB9R, my 9mm AR. Um, it's a 16-inch barrel, 9mm AR, takes Glock mags. Um, super happy with it, especially, I mean, especially with the way it looks and everything. It's super light, has a nice key mod uh, rail section, nice stock on it. Um, I changed out the pistol grip. I wasn't happy with the old school A2 pistol grip on it. Um, changed it out for something a little bit more comfortable. It's really nice. Um, my only thing I got to say about it is I shot about two, 300 rounds through it at the range. Um, first off, the recoil on it um, for a 9mm was a lot more than I expected. I actually think it may have been a little bit more heavy recoiling than my normal ARs and 5.56, but that's beside the point. I could deal with that. I'm wondering if that's just not a gas issue or something, but um, my main issue I'm having with it is, like I said, I shot about 300 rounds through it, and I took it home to clean it. I broke it all apart, put it in my vice block, and opened it up, and the whole lower receiver and upper receiver were covered in unburnt powder. It looked like someone... uh, poured a whole powder horn in my in my receiver it was just covered it took me hours to clean it so i don't know if like and i know nine millimeter blowback guns are are notoriously dirty um but i couldn't imagine them being that dirty like i swear i swear to you guys it looked i should have taken a picture of it but it looked like a glitter bomb went off in my receiver um i had to go out and buy more <laughs> gun cleaner and gun solvent to actually clean it all out but um the only thing I can think of that's happening is the bolt is actually cycling a little too early, maybe. So the bolt carrier is actually open just a little bit too early as the round's fired and letting all that unburned powder and carbon come back into the receiver. There wasn't that much carbon, actually, come to think of it, but there was a lot of a lot more unburnt powder. And I was actually seeing, as I was shooting, um, like sparks coming out of the ejection port so i'm thinking that was probably some unburnt powder coming out of the side there too um but i'm gonna try and put a heavier buffer and a heavier buffer spring in it maybe that'll help kind of keep the bolt forward a little bit longer i'm actually gonna put a 308 buffer and a 308 buffer spring in it i actually have the spring now i'm just waiting for the buffer weight to come in so so we're gonna try that out once i get that 
Um, I'll figure it out. I'll let you guys know how it's going. I actually already emailed and talked to uh, Diamondback on the phone. I'm just waiting to hear from them. So, um, so I will let you know as soon as I get any news on that. But it is a really nice gun. As it shoots, it's it's a laser beam. It's accurate. So um, hopefully I can get the the cleaning, the dirty aspect out of the way. So that'd be nice. But um, getting into the topic of this episode today, um, I guess it'd be more a little uh, kind of conjunction of a little history lesson as well as some uh, preps that I think you should have. So let's let's kind of get into it. Today we're going to be talking about the militia and the Minuteman. Um, and what I think the 21st century Minuteman should have at his, at his disposal. Um, so let's get into it, talk a little bit about what the actual militia is and what a militia is. So if you guys don't remember from your, your elementary school history class, uh, basically during col- colonial times, militia was pretty much any uh, fighting age male who was willing to pick up a gun or pick up a rifle and go into battle. So an organized militia would be something like the National Guard or the Naval Militia, someone who actually has like government funding backing them and, and helping them out. Um, an un- unorganized militia, especially a colonial militia, was a group of people from 17 to 45 uh, who picked up their guns and putting on put on their hunting clothes and went out into the woods ready to fight. So... Um, for the purpose of this episode, we're mainly going to be talking about the unorganized militia, because um, I think that would kind of more uh, correlate with what we would be today, because uh, obviously we have the National Guard and, and things like that today in place to help with that kind of uh, domestic threats and, and foreign terrorism and things like that. But as far as your own safety and everything, we're going to be focusing on like more of the colonial unorganized militia. So... So let's get into it. Um, there's a act written out in ni- uh, 1792. Um, obviously, militias were in place well before this, um, but the act is actually in the Militia Act of 1792 and the Second Militia Act. Basically, it's it gives like uh, parameters for the militia on who can call who can call upon them and what kind of things that the militia should have in their possession and at their disposal. So. Uh, let's talk about that real quick. Let's let me go over that. It says, whenever the United States shall be invaded by imminent danger, or I'm sorry, shall be invaded or be in imminent danger from an invasion from any foreign nation or Indian tribe, it shall be lawful for the president of the United States to call forth such number of the militia. And then in the second militia act, it states, any free able-bodied male citizen who is of age of 18 years and under the age of 45 years shall severally and respectively be enrolled in the militia. Every citizen within six months thereafter provide himself with a good musket or firelock, a sufficient bayonet and belt, two spare flints and a knapsack and a pouch with a box therein to contain no less than 24 cartridges suited to the bore of his musket or firelock, each cartridge to contain a proper quantity of powder and ball. So basically, it, that talks. The Militia Act talks about um, who's able to call upon the militia. So basically, the president can call out and at any time and call upon the people, cl- the militia members closest to the most convenient place of danger. So the most convenient militia members would be called upon. Um, the second part of the act, the second Militia Act, actually states the requirements that the militia members should have 
on their person or should have a, uh, at their disposal. So um, that goes over uh, basically the firearm, the the belts, the spare flints for the firearm, um, a pouch and knapsack to keep everything in, and then 24 cartridges and, um, suited with a powder and ball. So basically it gives you the minimum requirements for the ammunition and arms that every militia member should have. So, and keep in mind that the militia is pretty much every able-bodied citizen. So, basically, every able-bodied male citizen during this time period should have had this. Um, and like I said before, militias uh, go back way before the colonial era, or I'm sorry, the colonial era. Colonial era sorry, can't talk. Um, like, if we look, go back to um, England, the Assize of Arms, 1181. Let every holder of a knight's fee have a hauberk, helmet, a shield, and a lance, and let every knight have as many hauberks, helmets, shields, and lances as he has knight's fees in his demise. Also, let every free layman who holds chattels, rent, or value of 16 marks have a hauberk, helmet, and a shield and lance. Also, let every free man who holds chattels or rent worth 10 marks have a headpiece of iron and a lance. Basically saying that every free man should have a minimum of body armor and a basic infantry weapon, so minimum of chain mail or a helmet and a lance or a sword or something like that. And when they talk about shadows here, it's basically any any sort of movable uh, property. So basically, if you own property or own own land, you are required to carry to own this stuff. Now, if you are a knight or a noble of some sort, you actually had to have more things or higher quality gear. So you'd have to have better chain mail or a full suit of armor or better lances and swords and halberds and things like that. So, and actually, if you read further into the Seas of Arms of 1181, it talks about that if you didn't get this stuff by a certain amount of time, that they will, you could potentially be put to death or torture until you, unless you got this equipment. So they were pretty serious about it even back then. So, like I said, militias go back way far. So um, now, if we look at Minutemen in around 1640s. Massachusetts Bay, all able, like I said before, all able-bodied men were required to participate in the, in the local militia. Um, some men were actually selected from general ranks to be ready for rapid deployment. The men normally selected were no more than 30 years old and were cho chosen because of their enthusiasm, um, the reliability and strength. So they would normally choose the younger guys to do uh, to do the Minuteman job. And like I said, Minutemen are... Um, I doubt that they would actually be ready in 60 seconds, but they were all ready for rapid deployment. So they were the first responders and special forces of the colonial, colonial era. Um, they would have all their stuff ready to go, and at the first sound or first sight of danger, that they would get all their stuff ready and head into battle. Now, they wouldn't necessarily run straight into battle, but sometimes they would head out and wait for reinforcements to be right behind them. So they would just be the ones who are a little bit quicker to get out. Um, and then all the old heads, the older guys would file in behind them. Like I said, basically younger members were chosen. They weren't provided any sort of uniforms or arms on their own. They, Like I said before, they wore their 
their farming or their hunting clothes. Um, so if you think Daniel Boone or David Crockett, that kind of that kind of gear is what they would. Uh, David Crockett, geez, that's that's kind of stuff that they would wear for um, for battle. Their arms normally consisted of their hunting weapons, such as uh, long rifles or muskets or fowling pieces. A fowling piece is kind of like an old think like an old timey shotgun. Um, and there's some speculation out there that they would actually carry tomahawks. Now, I don't really know that that's proven. Um, I'm sure that at some point, some Minuteman or Militiaman uh, picked up a tomahawk and carried around with them. But as far as I know, that's just from the movie The Patriot. So, um, And like I said before, they also had to have nap- knapsacks with uh, for their powder and ammo, so they would have some way to carry their extra ammo and extra powder so that they could reload quickly and stay in the fight. Um, and because they were all hunters, they were very familiar with their landscape and the woods. Um, they learned it a lot from the French and Indian War that the conventional forms of warfare where they would march and file in line wasn't that practical. Um, so they were really good at uh, skirmishing and pretty much favored wilderness and guerrilla warfare. Um, like I said, they learned that a lot from the French and Indian War where the Indians tended to... Uh, know the land, lay of the land pretty well, could kind of get the drop on people a lot easier, so let's review that a little bit. Basic militia, anyone who's 18 to 45 years old. Minutemen were the younger men of the militia, but were were selected because they were ready and able, they were more enthusiastic, and they were more reliable and strong, so... The militia were the first armed and first, or I'm sorry, the Minutemen were the first armed and first to arrive on scene, and then they would wait for the reinforcements to follow behind them, so... How can that relate to you today? Um, I believe personally that you should always be ready for pretty much anything that happens. I'm kind of a, I don't want to call myself quite a prepper because I'm not on that level yet. Um, But I do have a lot of preps in order and a lot of supplies ready to go in case something were to happen that I wouldn't be stuck dead in the water. So um, reasons why you would need to be prepared today is if your home city state or you is under attack or if there's a natural disaster or there's an earthquake or tornado or something like that or god forbid we're being invaded by someone and you need to uh, so to speak get out of dodge i think that you should have the necessary supplies and gear and training ready and available to you to help defend yourself and your family. So you got to be your own first responder. You got to be ready, willing, and able to get in the fight and go. So what do you need? Well, there's a few tiers. Um, I think that there's probably like three main tiers. We could probably make four, but I, I want I would go off of three main tiers of the supplies I think you would need. Now we're not going to go into too much detail on exactly what supplies I think you should have. Um, just kind of the general, um, we're going to cover them generally. So the basic stuff, the, uh, minimum requirements that I think that everyone should have, and then you could fill it in and add what you think you might also need to add to your bags or your kit to help you survive in any sort of situation where you need to bug out or defend yourself or your family. So I think the first tier and the first thing that you would need um, would be a good quality EDC. Um, 
EDC meaning everyday carry. Um, my EDC consists, uh, I carry a Glock 19 and a hazmat gear, or I'm sorry, hazmat holster works holster, uh, carried appendix. Um, I carry a UM tactical mag pouch with a spare magazine. I carry a pocket knife, a fixed blade knife. I carry a tourniquet. I carry my cell phone and my wallet. So oh, I also carry a pen and a notebook as well. So those are all the things that I think that I could possibly need in a day-to-day -day scenario. Quite honestly, the thing I use the most out of everything is my knife, my pocket knife. I have to sharpen it probably once or twice a week because I use it so much opening boxes and digging out splinters and things like that. So um, oh, I also carry a flashlight as well, which is also probably the a flashlight and my pocket knife are the two things I use the most out of my EDC. I've never had to use my tourniquet. I've never had to use my gun. Um, I've had to use my notebook quite a few times, but that's just common writing things down, nothing emergencies or anything like that. So um, I would recommend everyone carry a minimum of a flashlight and a pocket knife. So if you don't want to carry a gun, I would say minimum requirements is to carry a flashlight and a pocket knife. Like I said, use that more than anything else in my whole EDC. And I would say, to top that, um, everyone should carry some sort of medical equipment, because quite honestly, out of my entire med kit I keep in my car, um, the thing I use the most is band-aids and medical tape. So, it, at the very least, carry some sort of bandages or something like that in your in your wallet or in your purse or, or wherever you have to carry it. Um, but, quite honestly, guys, a tourniquet doesn't take up that much space. I carry a rat's tourniquet, so I just thread it through my belt loops and I don't even notice it's there. Um, so, and as far as a concealed carry gun goes, um, I'd recommend no smaller than a 9mm. Um, you can go 380, but you're not going to really find any... Um, the mag capacity normally isn't there for a 380. So I would go 9mm. I'd go something with a, a semi-decent capacity. Um, like I said, you can go above uh, 40, or I'm sorry, above 9mm into 40 and 45 and things like that, but I wouldn't go really anything too extreme. I wouldn't go like 10mm, 357 SIG or anything like that for your EDC. Um, I would really recommend just a 9mm, um, it's common ammo, um, like I said, I carry a Glock, a Gen 5 Glock 19, common ammo, common gun, magazines are common and plentiful for it, so I can pretty much find ammo anywhere I go, um, ammo is lightweight, things like that, so, uh, whenever you're looking for a gun, you want to make sure it's, uh, if you're going to carry it every day, it's lightweight, it's comfortable, holsters are available for it, magazines are available for it, and you want to make sure that ammo is not too, too pricey. So that, that'd be your tier one level of preparedness. So that basically meaning I could go, I have that on me seven days a week, anytime I'm out of the, out of my house, pretty much in my house too. I pretty much have that stuff on me all the time too. So, um, moving on to the next level of readiness, I would say you should have, um, along with your EDC, I would also recommend that you probably have a, some sort of semi-automatic rifle with detachable magazines. Um, it's probably no surprise that I recommend the AR-15. The reason I recommend that is it's probably the most common rifle in the U.S. Um, it's 
incredibly versatile. You could use it for long range, short range, um, inside, outside. Magazines are plentiful for it. Find them pretty much in every state, every every gun shop or every uh, sporting goods store. You'd be able to find AR mags. Um, ammo is super lightweight for it. It's plentiful as well. If you were if you're buying an AR right now, I'd recommend you buy it buy it in like a five five six chambering. That way you could shoot two two three or anything like that out of it. Um, as far as how to set up your rifle, um, that really depends on where your what your location is. So if you're in more of like an urban environment, like in the city or a lot of buildings around you and things like that, where you're not going to be taking real long shots, I'd recommend going like a red dot or a hollow sight, or even maybe just keeping your standard iron sights on it. Um, you can possibly go to like a variable powered optic, like a one to six or a one to one to four or something like that. But I don't think you'd really find a need for anything more long range than than a one power scope or one power optic. Um, now, if you're more in like the country or something like that, you might want to consider having a like a prismatic scope or a one to six power scope on it, so you could take those longer shots. Which, like I said, the AR is capable of taking longer range shots anyway. So, um, my personal rifle is a Stag fifteen, uh, Stag Model fifteen. Um, with an improved bolt carrier group, a Midwest Industries M-Lock rail system on it, a Vortex Strike Fire 2 red dot, and then I have Magpul backup iron sights. The only minimum requirements I would say to have on your gun or on your rifle would be uh, backup iron sights in conjunction with your optic. So whether you have... Um, whether you have a fixed power or a red dot or a variable power scope on it, I'd recommend always having backup iron sights because you never know when that optic's going to fail. And then if you have an electronic optic like a red dot or a hollow sight, I would recommend carrying some extra batteries with you too. Um, and the other thing that I, I would definitely recommend would be a good quality sling so you don't actually have to carry the weight of your rifle around everywhere if you were bugging out. So... Like I said, the only requirements I'd really have for your rifle, if you're building it or if you're buying it, um, I'd say it has to be lightweight but reliable. I wouldn't really worry too, too much about the lightweight. I wouldn't be adding all kinds of lasers, lights, and flashlights and unnecessary gears and gadgets to it, but just have it lightweight and as reliable as possible. So, And make sure you actually shoot it and try it and find all the faults in its system and you can fix and adjust where needed. So... To go along with that, I would say no less than six loaded magazines. You don't want to be anywhere without ammo, and you don't want to have to sit there loading fresh mags. So, I would have six loaded magazines, plus two loaded pistol mags, plus the one in each gun. So, seven rifle mags and three pistol mags. Um, and then I would also have some sort of carrier to carry it. Um, you could use like a like a battle belt think like a like a police officer wears something like actually clips on to the your belt and holds every all the gear in place you could use some kind of chest rig or harness i know they have like over the shoulder rigs that have all the magazines up front or on the side um something like that would be good or you could even use like a molly plate carrier and strap all your molly pouches for the magazines and everything to that so so requirements for tier two are 
Ooh, another thing you need to have in there would be probably a more advanced med kit too. So, in the med kit, I would have a tourniquet, gauze, compression bandages, like a hemostatic agent, something like quick quick clot or like a hemostatic gauze, um, some kind of trauma shears, and then some kind of tape as well. So, um, that would be the minimum I would have in your in your little medical kit you'd call it like a blowout kit or an IFAC or something like that but um, minimum is tourniquet gauze compression bandages and hemostatic agent so um, so your level two preparedness is going to be a like I said AR-15 um, six loaded mags plus one in the gun your pistol plus two loaded mags plus one in the gun a carrier of some sort to hold all of the magazines and med kits to your body so you don't have to lug it all around in a, like some kind of bag or something like that or put, throw it all in your pockets and then a more advanced med kit so to go in and all that is to go in conjunction with your first tier EDC so obviously your your handgun if that goes if that goes over would be continued on into tier 2 I wouldn't expect you to have two handguns but um, just make sure that Everything from your tier one works with your tier two as well as well as like your medical stuff that you would have in your tier one. Um, I would also probably recommend doubling up on that. So if you carry a tourniquet everywhere for your EDC, throw an extra one in your tier two bag or your tier two uh, carrier or whatever. So going into the last and probably the mode most advanced tier, I'd say you should have a body armor and some kind of 72-hour bug-out bag with the supplies to last you. Um, as far as body armor goes, I'm not a... Like I said, I was never in the military or law enforcement or anything like that. All I have is internet research and word of mouth and uh, reviews and things like that and a lot of YouTube watching. So, From my personal knowledge, I would not recommend you go anything less than a level 3 armor. Um, level 3 is going to stop all handgun rounds and almost all rifle rounds, I think up to a 308. So if you get level 3 plates and put them in a, a molly plate carrier, you'll, there's your carrier to hold your magazines and everything from your level 2. I would recommend probably staying away from soft body armor as I think most soft body armor is only good for pit uh, pistols and it kind of drops off once you get into large caliber uh, rounds um, and I know there's there's a bunch of different kinds of body armor you have uh, soft body armor you have like Kevlar and things like that you have uh, ceramic body armor which is actually ceramic plates you have your steel body armor and now they actually have uh, it's starting to get real big it's polymer arm armor so it's like some sort of polymer material that's really compressed and durable and supposedly they can make up to level three plates in that as well um like i said i don't have any experience getting shot with a plate on so i don't know what's <laughs> i don't know what's gonna stop what all i have is watching videos of people shooting the plates so from what I can see, um, a level pr 3 plate is probably going to do you good. Um, I'd get two plates, one front, one back, and then everyone else who needs body armor, I'd get them plates as well. So, as far as like a trauma pad, a trauma pad is something you'd put either, I, th I believe, behind the plate in your plate carrier to kind of absorb some of the blunt force trauma from the round actually hitting you, because if you could imagine, there's a lot of energy coming from a bullet that's flying 21 feet per 
feet per second hitting you in the chest, so wouldn't be a bad idea to throw some trauma pads in there too, so like I said, stay away from soft body armor, I don't really know too too much about ceramic body armor, people say that uh, ceramic body armor, if you if it takes a hard fall, or if you get hit really hard, or trip and fall, it tend, it could tend to break and be more brittle and not, not as reliable. I don't know about that. Like I said, I have no experience with it, but I, I know that I shoot AR-500 steel whenever I, I'm, I'm at the range or my buddies play shooting steel targets, so I know that it can pretty much take anything and not even have a little nick or a mark on it. So I'd recommend steel plates. That's just my, my opinion, and if you're getting if you're getting shot multiple times, and quite honestly, if you get a ceramic plate and it's supposedly only good for three shots or whatever, if you're getting shot multiple times, you probably shouldn't be standing in that spot or be, not be in that area, so um, anyway, <laughs> besides the point, so uh, moving on into the bag, um, the contents of your bag definitely depends on your location as well, just as well as your rifle. Because everything's area dependent. If you're in really cold places, you're going to have more cold weather gear and maybe sleeping bags and things like that. If you're in a hotter climate, you might have more water, uh, less clothes, and more ways to keep cool or shaded or things like that. So let's talk. Let's so let's get into that. I believe that a good bag should contain some variation on f- water, food, shelter, fire, medical security and communications and navigation so but first before we get into all that let's talk about the bag itself the bag should be sturdy and comfortable um it should be a high quality bag so it shouldn't deteriorate or break up on you after uh after a long time i believe they actually have i don't remember what the word is it's they call it like 1000 d or 2000 d it's just like the the material of nylon or whatever material they make, the strength of the actual material. So you want to find a nice sturdy bag, um, and you want to buy a bag the right size too. So don't, because a lot of uh, people make the mistake they'll buy a really ginormous bag, thinking they're going to be able to stuff all this stuff in it. And you can, you can put a lot of stuff in it, but you can't carry it when it's that heavy. So. Um, I know like an old hiker trick is if you buy a smaller bag, you're less inclined to bring more stuff. So um, bring get the biggest bag that um, you could pack what you need into it. So you want to have a little bit of room for stuff in case you, you pick stuff up or need to jam something else in it right before you bug out. But um, you don't want this giant honking rucksack where you're going to be stuffing 40 magazines and ammo cans and things like that into it. So um, you want to be able to carry it. Like I said, if you get a real big bag, you're going to be more inclined to fill it. So get the right size where it could be the right weight. Um, the look of the bag, too, depends on the location. So if you're in a real wooded area, you might want to consider going for something like a camouflage bag or or like a, a green or like a black bag. But if you're in a more urban environment, if you're walking around with a digi camo backpack, you might get some funny looks. So in more urban environment, I'd probably recommend like a gray bag or a black bag or a white bag, something like a regular school backpack, quite honestly, would be probably more what I'd recommend. Um, so the look of it depends on the location. So let's get into the contents of it. Um, as far as water goes, I'd pack a couple liters of water, um, ready to go and I'd rotate them out as frequently as possible. So, um, you can never have too much water. I mean, I guess you can being weight wise, but I think it's something like you want to have 6.6 pounds of water per person. Um, 
I think it's per person per day, actually. Um, do I still have that link up? No, I don't. Um, I believe it's 6.6 .6 pounds per day per person. So if you have two liters of water, that should last you probably about three days, especially if you're concerned. It's being a little conservative, too. Um, as well as the ready-to-go water, I would also have some sort of water purification. So whether that be purification tablets, iodine drops, or some sort of filter, like a Life Straw or a Sawyer water filter. I think you can get them pretty reasonably priced. Um, I think Walmart and Amazon sells them, so you could find them there. And in conjunction with that, I would also have a way to boil water too, so a metal pot of some sort that you can actually boil water by or I'm sorry, purify water by boiling instead of just relying on the tablets or your water that you have ready to go. And like I said, if you do pack water into your bag, make sure you're constantly rotating it out so and make sure it's not leaking or anything like that because the last thing you want to do is pick up your bug, it, bug out bag and it be soaking wet and everything in it's ruined, which quite honestly most of the stuff in it should be waterproof, but... Um, still, you don't want to, want to go through that hassle. So Now, whenever we come to food... The food you bring should be light in weight, but heavy in calories, because quite to be totally honest, you're not going to want to have a uh, freeze-dried meals where you're actually going to have to cook over a fire. You want to have stuff that's ready to eat, um, calorie-dense, and lightweight, so it's not going to be weighing you down in your bag, so... I'd recommend some kind of protein bars, possibly Cliff Bars. Um, I know SOS Food Labs makes some energy bars, and they make uh, these like food ration bars. They're like 3,600 calories. It looks just like a brick of like a brick of uh, protein bar. It's it's basically what it is: a giant protein bar. Um, so 36, you pack a couple of those in there, that should last you a good time. Um, like I said, it doesn't have to taste great. Um, maybe if you're feeling up to it and you have the room and space in your bag, I'd throw maybe a couple things that would kind of lift your spirits a little bit. So maybe some candy or, or something like that, that something that's not going to taste totally awful. So even if you're getting tired of the rations after day two, you have something that's like a some gum or something like that that's going to kind of lift your spirits and be a different taste. So, as far as shelter goes, uh, shelter, like I said, it's going to depend on your location. So, if you're in a hotter environment, you probably don't need to pack all these emergency tents and emergency blankets and sleeping bags and things like that. You might just need um, one little emergency blanket and you'd be fine camping out on the ground somewhere. Um, but if you're in somewhere like I live in Pennsylvania where it could be 80 degrees during the day, but drop down to 40 degrees at night, um, you might need something a little bit more quality. So what I'd probably recommend would be some kind of emergency blanket or tarp or a bivy tent. I know that Amazon, they sell a emergency bivy tents. Um, they roll up real small in little stuff sacks and they come out and it's like a triangle tube tent. So, um, and I believe it's made out of that, like, emergency blanket looking like mylar blanket stuff so it's super hot if you've ever used one of those emergency blankets they really do work they warm you up um but the one thing is if you're ever using one of those emergency blankets near a fire just be careful because every time the every time the fire sparks you your emergency blanket gets a little bit smaller so um, they do sell, I know Walmart sells like the emergency Mylar blankets, really tiny ones that fold up to the size of like a pack of gum for 
they sell them for like four bucks or something like that. But they also sell a more rugged, heavy-duty one. It's more of like a cloth. It's a little bit bigger, um, and those probably last a little bit longer. Um, and like I said, if you're in a really cold environment, you probably want to bring something a little bit more extensive, like an actual cold weather sleeping bag, as well as some cold weather clothing and gear. So, um, also, like I said, shelter, you can do tarps, you could do hammocks, you could do bivy tents, things like that. And in some cases you might not even need a shelter. So, um, now we go into fire. I would have a few, few ways to start a fire. I'm not going to really touch too long on this part, but, um, I'd have waterproof matches, a lighter, a ferrule rod, and as some sort of dry tinder. I know they sell like juke twine or, or uh, fat wood, um, just something that helps start fires easier because if you've ever been in a situation where everything around you is wet and it's raining and you're trying to get a fire started and it's taken forever, you'll be thankful you have some dry tinder packed in, packed away in one of your packs. A um, little side note actually um flares are a good thing to have just for fire starters like small little emergency flares you light one of those up and you throw some semi dry even if it's a little bit wet you throw some semi dry sticks and even some damp leaves and stuff like that it'll it'll all catch and you'll actually have a fire going in a little in a quick little while so um matches lighter ferrule rods tinder basically it um, have always have multiple ways to start a fire. I always carry a lighter on me too. I think that's something I forgot to mention in my EDC, but I always try to carry a lighter on me. Um, and I think it's something quite honestly, most people should because, um, everyone needs a way to start a fire. So the next thing to add to your kit would probably be more extensive medical supplies. So in this med kit, I would probably have Backup in doubles of all the trauma supplies I mentioned before. So your tourniquets, compression bandages, gauze, shears, um, uh, hemostatic agents, th uh, things like that. So your ACE bandages and stuff. So, uh, especially tourniquets. You can never have too many tourniquets. I've heard stories of people putting um, three or four tourniquets on people when in in wartime situations and stuff. So, um, you can never have too much of that. You can never have too much gauze. Um, and you can never have too many band-aids. So, um, in that more extensive medical kit, I would also throw some of your basic first aid supplies. So, like I said before, some like basic band-aids, um, your, um, ice pack, tape, emodium, Benadryl, um, ibuprofen, aspirin, things like that, basic stuff that you're going to need all the time. So I'd throw that stuff in your, in, in that med kit as well. Um, as well as the more extensive trauma supplies. So, um, now the next thing I would say, uh, to throw in would be security supplies. So I'd throw in a few loaded, a few more loaded pistol mags, a few more loaded rifle mags. Um, it's not going to hurt. Just don't make it too heavy. I'd probably say maybe only throwing, um, six more rifle mags in there, um, and maybe three or four more loaded pistol mags in, and as far as the pistol mags go, maybe even throw some loose pistol ammo in there, I'll obviously put it in a bag and then throw it in there, don't just throw, dump rounds in your bag, but, um, maybe just some extra pistol ammo too, because it's no big deal loading up pistol mags, but if you go load up 12 rifle mags, it's a big pain in the ass, so, um, I'd throw at least six more 
mags in there and three more, four more pistol mags. Um, like I said, you just don't want to make it too heavy because it's a pain in the ass if you ever carried around like like your range bag or something. Like like I know going up to my camp, I, I have my little camouflage backpack. I throw all my ammo in and the thing must weigh 80 pounds. So don't want to overload on the ammo, but you definitely want to make sure you have enough. Um, and the other thing I would throw in there too would be a high quality fixed blade knife. And the thing with the knife is once the knife is in your bag and once you go to bug out, I'd say move the fixed blade knife from your backpack to your belt or your pocket or wherever you can carry it somewhere. It's easy to be accessed. Cause like I said, with the pocket knife, um, whenever you're in the woods, whenever you're bugging out and you're in a survival situation, your knife's probably going to be your number one tool you use. So make sure you have something like that. Um, as far as communications and signaling goes, there's a couple different methods available to civilians. Um, obviously, the number one and the biggest one is your cell phone. So, um, every, almost everybody's got a cell phone. I know 10-year-olds that have cell phones and 90-year-olds that have cell phones. So, there's no excuse not to have one. Um, and in your bag, I would have a way to charge it. So, those little external battery packs, I'd throw one or two of them in. Um, make sure you're checking on that. Make sure it's always fully charged. Um, and it might not even be a bad idea to have a like a charged prepaid phone stashed in your bag for an emergency. Um, the thing is, sometimes you won't have reception. You won't have uh, signal. So... Uh, it would be nice to have another way of contact someone or at least a way to receive information because keep in mind the cell phone you can't or isn't always to contact someone in basically small computers so you can look up information get news reports and weather reports and things like that so um, if you don't have a cell phone or if you don't have reception or anything like that the next best best option would be um, like a two-way radio or emergency weather radios um, it would be nice to know when you can go back home if you're bugging out because of like a medical or I'm sorry, a uh, environmental reason like a natural disaster or storm or something like that. It'd be nice to know, have the weather radio to tell you if everything's safe and able to go back home. The two way radios, most like Motorola uh, two way radios have have like a weather feature to them so you could listen to the weather reports. Um, Another thing would be maybe ham radios. I know that you can buy, anyone can buy a ham radio and you can actually listen to the frequencies and channels that are being played, but you can't actually transmit on a ham radio without a license. Um, I do believe, though, if you were in an emergency situation and you had access to a ham radio, um, you are allowed to transmit, but only in emergencies. So, so cell phones, radios, ham radios, um, there's many other kinds of communications, I wouldn't say you have to learn, uh, Morse code or anything like that, but, um, as long as you have your cell phone on you, and if you throw a ham radio or a shortwave radio in your bag, um, you're probably going to be set, um, just to at least have some sort of, uh, contact to know what's going on in the outside world say you're out in the middle of the woods for three days you have no idea what's going on it might be nice to hear that radio say that oh everything's the flooding and your local hometown has stopped or or whatever i wouldn't say <clears throat> i wouldn't say run to the woods if your town's flooding but that's beside the point so as far as like signaling goes um 
There's a couple things I think you should throw in your kit too. You're going to need another way to contact help in case your batteries in your phone, your radios, or things like that are dead. So I'd recommend having flares or cam lights. Um, more likely flares, because flares can be seen a lot further away than a chem light can. Even though, if, if you don't know what I mean by chem light, it's basically like a like a military glow stick, or you can even use regular glow sticks too, they're just not as bright, but um, if you take a chem light and tie it to a spr uh, string and you spin it in a circle, you can have like a three foot disc of light as opposed to one little tiny stick, so they can be used as signaling devices, but I know that signal flares and maritime flares are a lot better at signaling for help, so... Um, another thing would be, this would be only for daytime, but signaling mirrors, so some sort of reflective, reflective surface or signaling mirror that you could signal aircraft or people or boats far away that you need help, so, um, another thing could be some sort of, uh, signal light or distress beacon, so like a, some sort of IR strobe or distress strobe, something that would constantly blink that you could attach to your pack and not really have to worry about constantly, uh, actively signaling someone it would kind of just be going on its own on your pack kind of in the same relation to signaling uh, communication and signaling I'd kind of lump it together with navigation because it's definitely important to know where you're going um, I would probably have maybe uh, a GPS with preloaded downloaded maps onto it so don't just expect your GPS to work whenever you pull it out and be able to download the maps on the spot have your area and your location, your bug out location, um, mapped out and planned out on the GPS is pre-downloaded. Also, in conjunction to that, or standalone, I would have physical maps of your area. Um, and on your maps, don't just get your map and stick it in your bags. Get your map. Um, one thing is make sure it's like a laminated map because you don't want a nasty wet map if it starts raining on you or something. But get a physical map. Open it up and pre-route pre and pre-mark your bug out locations and your routes to where you're going to go so they're easier to find on the map. Um, highlight alternate routes as well um, and practice them. So if it's a driving route, maybe you drive the alternate route one time. If, you're, if it's someplace you're always going, if it's a campsite or something like that, practice going the routes that you drew up in, in your maps. So have those physical maps ready and stashed in your bag. Um, and probably the most important piece of navigation equipment would I would say would be a compass um, and the knowledge to know how to read one. I know that my very first dispersed camping trip, I spent probably two days on YouTube and on the internet trying to learn how to read a compass because I never was taught how to. Um, it's really not that hard, but it does take some skill. And if you need, if you're going to use a map, you need to know how to read a compass and don't just rely on the compass on your phone or the GPS telling you where to go. So learn how to read a compass, learn how to read a map and learn how to navigate your own route. I wouldn't really go as far as saying like you need to learn how to do starlight navigation or anything like that. I really wouldn't say moving at night is very safe anyway. Um, for most situations, some situations you might have to move at night, but knowing how to read a compass goes a really long way. So, um, so those are the main things. Like I said, you have your water, your food, your shelter, your fire, your medical, your security, your communications, signaling, and navigation. Those are probably the most important things you need. 
Um, obviously, I think the top things would be food, water, shelter, or I'm sorry, food, water, medical, and security. Um, but I wouldn't really skimp out on anything. I'd say that that list is the bare minimum of the stuff you would need. And like I said, those categories you could fill in at your own will. So um, that's why I didn't give any specific products besides like the SOS Food Labs uh, ration bars. Because um, I kind of want you guys to know your own location and your bug out bag and your 72-hour bag depends on where you're at in the country and in the world and what you might need on a day-to-day basis. So, um, you're not going to be living in luxury or anything, so you're not going to be packing all kinds of crazy stuff, but you need the bare minimum essentials to make your day, you need the bare minimum essentials to make your day a little bit better. So, um, other important things I'd throw in would be flashlights and headlamps. Um, I'd recommend a head headlamp over a flashlight because if you ever tried to work with your hands and hold a flashlight, um, I hate holding things in my teeth, so I, I can't stand holding flashlights in my mouth. Um, or you can try and do the shoulder to the head thing, but that never works. So if you have a headlamp, it makes life so much easier. And then um, obviously pack extra batteries for the flashlight and headlamp, and as well as like flat batteries for your GPS units and other sort anything that takes batteries, pack extra batteries for it. A small tool kit and a multi-tool. Now I don't think you need to have socket sets or um, impact wrenches or torque wrenches with you or anything like that, but um, if you have maybe a hammer, a small saw, a pair of pliers like quite honestly a multi-tool like a leatherman or something like that with a like a bunch of different tools on it would be really useful so you want wire cutters pliers basic screwdrivers maybe a couple wrenches and maybe like a hammer or saw or just something simple that you could because i mean maybe not even a hammer because you could use a rock as a hammer um but basic simple tools it kind of makes fixing the stuff that you have or anything that you might find a little bit easier. You're obviously not going to be trying to fix a, uh, engine in the middle of a disaster or something like that. Um, along with the, that tool kit, I would say a small cleaning kit for your gun. So a small bottle oil, small bottle solvent, some brushes and rods. Um, I would probably add that into it too, as well as with your AR, maybe consider in the cleaning kit throwing some extra springs um maybe a couple extra pins and a maybe even an extra bolt carrier group just throw that in the kit just in case because quite honestly if anything goes wrong with your ar it's going to be in the spring system or it's going to be in the bolt carrier group um so nothing that's going to go wrong with your barrel or, or anything like that so throw a couple extra parts in your cleaning kit and forget about them don't worry about it so um i'd say toolkit cleaning kit um any tools that you need for fixing your guns i'd throw those in too so i know like you 1911 guys you have that special tool to take the barrel out and i think you can do it without it but regardless uh, any tools that are gun or firearm specific throw that in your bag as well um a big one that i didn't mention was rain gear and a change of clothes so if you've ever been out in the woods without any rain gear you know where I'm coming from. It sucks. So at least have like the old school um, military poncho in there. Don't get those little clear see-through ponchos. Those things are garbage. As soon as you put them on, they rip. So get a get a nice quality rain uh, raincoat or poncho. And I would also recommend having um, 
an extra change of clothes in your bag too. So socks, underwear, shirt, pants. Um, like I said, you're only this is only a 72 hour bag, so I don't expect you to change your clothes every day. But if you get your clothes soaking wet, it would be nice to have, throw on some warm, dry clothes too. So other big things that I feel like are kind of self-explanatory, but I'm going to mention anyway. Um, don't forget your toiletries, like your toothbrush and toilet paper and any sort of medications that you might need, um, any sort of prescriptions, um, throw extras in your bag. Um, you never want to be out anywhere without toilet paper and need it, and it's always nice to brush your teeth too. So throw that. Those are some other important little tidbits I'd think you should have in the bag. Um, I'd also rec- recommend having a bag, a separate bag for every member of your family. So your fiance, your wife, your kids. Um, but the big thing with that is make sure that they're able to carry them. So your kids aren't going to have the same kind of bag as your 10 year old daughter is not going to have the same sort of, uh, 72 hour bag as you are. Um, she's not going to be able to carry it. So give her a bag that's more fitted to her. And then if you need to take some of the supplies that she'll need and add them to you and your wife or your fiance's bag. Um, as well as pets. Um, if you have any pets that are going to be bugging out with you, um, make sure that they have all the supplies that they're going to need as well. So um, make sure you have your food, your leashes, your bowls. Um, they sell a lot of really nice collapsible bowls that are really nice for camping. Um, and they actually sell like harnesses and vests for dogs that kind of or like little backpacks and you could put all the stuff that they need into it. I don't think you'd be able to put everything in it, but like your food, your, their, uh, leashes and things like that, they could probably carry themselves. So, um, if you're bugging out with your dog, make sure you're prepped for that too. So, and I guess probably the most important part of it would be you got to have the training, the knowledge and the proper mindset to be willing to actually survive. So go get professional firearms training. So I, I, I personally haven't done this yet, but I plan on doing it this summer. Um, there's a lot of nice classes going around, going on around my area. So I'm going to look into taking some of those classes. Um, even if you can't take the classes, you can't afford it or whatever practice, um, dry fire is an amazing thing. Dry fire 20 minutes a day. Um, and you'll notice a uh, consistent improvement in your skills. Even you dry fire 20 minutes a day for a week and then go to the range, you're going to notice your trigger controls better, um, your grips better, and reloads uh, are going to get better and improve that way too. So constantly train. I'd always recommend you get some sort of professional training. Like I said, I'm guilty of not doing that myself, but I need to get into it and I'm trying to start doing that in the future. So practice using the medical supplies. They don't really have a purpose if you don't know how to use them. So take your compression bandages, learn how to use them, take your tourniquets and put them on. Um, as, and to top that off, uh, whenever you're practicing putting on your tourniquets, make sure you, uh, practicing doing them one handed or doing them with your off hand, um, putting them on other people, having other people put them on you. Um, things like that. Know how to use all your medical equipment. Cause like I said, they don't have a purpose if you don't know how to use them. Um, I know a lot of people will carry the medical equipment thinking, Oh, well, somebody's going to know how to use it, but you don't want to count on that. You don't want to consider or count on somebody being able to save your life whenever you had the ability to do it yourself. So, and also as well as 
um, to go along with that, practice using your survival tools. So try starting fires, try building shelters, try filtering water. Um, Because the last thing you want is to be in the middle of the woods and it's getting dark and you're trying to start a fire and you just can't figure it out. So learn how to use all your tools. Um, Don't just rely on the tools to do the job for you. You got to have the skills to go along with it. So and another big part of it is discuss your disaster plans with your family. So you got to have a plan. Um, All this gears isn't going to do you any good if you don't have a plan. So get your plan all set out, discuss it with your family. And like I said before, plan out your routes, plan out your timing. This can even go down to um, a fire in your house. You have a fire in your house. You need to know to go to the neighbor across the street's house or go to your friend down the street or, or whatever. So if there's, if there's a bad situation, you want everybody to be on the same page. Cause if everybody's not on the same page, you're just going to have complete and utter chaos. So bottom line is the only one who can prepare and protect you from a disaster is yourself. As Tom Gresham from gun talk radio says, don't outsource your safety. You're the only person that can protect yourself. The police and government have no duty to protect you, so it's up to you to have the gear and the skill and the willpower to survive. Um, that's basically it. So, if, if you're not willing to protect your own self, no one else is going to want to help you either. So, you got to be able to protect yourself, you got to be able to protect your family and your possessions and your property. So, but if protecting yourself means that you have to leave your property and possessions behind you better have the gear and willpower to take your stuff and get out and know where to go and have the plan to be safe and secure the entire time you're gone so um i hope i kind of touched on everything like i said this was kind of a i guess it wasn't really a brief episode but i kind of just blew through a lot of a lot of info real quick um, if you have any questions, you can hit me up on Instagram. It's S underscore Giacchino, um, S underscore G-I-A-C-C-H-I-N-O. Um, you can hit me up there, call, send me a message or comment on one of my pictures. I'd really appreciate it. I would also love it if you guys wrote a review on iTunes. Give me a five-star review on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, whenever you guys do that, it helps our podcast get out there and helps more people be able to see it and makes it a little bit more popular. So I don't think I'm going to be at Joe Rogan level anytime soon, but I'm not going to get there without your guys' help. So go on iTunes, go on Google Play, and write us a review. I really appreciate it. And also, if you have any questions, suggestions, or suggestions for a future show, or if I mess something up way beyond belief, leave um please send me an email to sit in with sal at gmail.com that's sit in with sal at gmail.com i'd really appreciate it i'd love to hear from you um so like i said you could always know when i'm going to post a new podcast episode i post up updates on instagram letting people know when i drop the new episode um or you could subscribe to us on itunes or google play so like i said Write us a review, send me an email, follow me on Instagram. Any questions? No? Good. So, with all that being said, to all you guys listening, thanks for listening. Remember history, prepare for the future, and live in the present. I'll see you next time. Thank you.